guys and welcome to the Decoding Life podcast with Catherine and Sophie. As a technical expert myself, I really enjoyed having this time to talk about the technician commitment with Berju Brunner Arnar. This initiative is inclusive of both technicians and technical experts and is open to academic institutes across the country. Berju spoke to us about her extensive experience working in the malaria lab and a really interesting project that she worked on there. But it also became clear through her career that progression to the next level just wasn't well defined as a technician, which actually made it really hard to achieve. It's really nice to be working at an institute that has signed up to this commitment, is spearheading policy changes, and also created a role specifically dedicated to this, the first of its kind in the country. However, there is still work to be done, and these standards need to be normalised across the country. If you are looking into becoming a technician, or you are a technician, or even you work with technicians, hopefully this conversation brings you some insight into how you can get involved. Hi, thanks for joining us, and it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Obviously, virtually. Uh, So you had many years as a wet lab scientist, but you recently moved to a new role in management. If you don't mind, before we talk about your current role, I'd like to know a bit more about the research that you've done previously. So I'm a molecular biologist, and I think as a molecular biologist, the uh, skills are very transferable between different uh, subjects. So whether you work on neurodegeneration or in malaria, like I did in Sanger, um, it's possible to use similar techniques. So techniques are very much the same on the areas change. So um, when I was in the Netherlands, I worked on uh, dementia, Parkinson, Parkinson disease, and I worked with groups where they were really, really experienced with genomics. Um, like mm-hmm. one group I worked with actually um, identified one of the genes involved in uh, Parkinson disease at that time. And then we did some uh, some more studies to see where what proteins are doing, not only DNA, but on protein level. And then when I moved to the Netherlands, to, to uh, Sanger, uh, there was a malaria project, which um, an area totally new to me. Yeah, that's quite a shift. It's quite a shift, but still it involves some form of culturing. So, so malaria is caused by a parasite um, and that is carried by a mosquito. Um, so although, of course, the, um, the mediums that we work with, like as a career, for example, you can use mouse um, because there is a, a parasite that infects rodents, for example. You can then instead of, of course, it's very difficult to use human directly for this kind of studies. Uh, then we were using a model, mouse model. Uh, although, of course, if you want to follow the whole cycle of the mosquito and the, and the parasite, uh, things are different. But on the molecular basis, things are pretty much the same. So I used a lot of, again, microbiology techniques. And then what, what that project was a, a genome-wide deleting the genes of this parasite because malaria is a big problem still because of the resistance uh, against the drugs that are used by this to this parasite and and we have limited number of uh, drugs currently so it's very important to know why this parasite is so single 
seller parasite is so successfully able to actually infect people and make them ill and then kill so many people i think still uh, should be more than 300,000 people a year maybe 500,000 so I think when I started, I really felt I would make a difference. I think that's really, really uh, that feeling. I remember that very well. And I think the project we worked by trying to deleting genes of a, a parasite and see what happens, whether we can stop its transmission across different mm-hmm. air, um, stages, uh, was, is, was a really big project. And I really enjoyed, which was very collaborative. I worked with a great team, really very uh, skilled very uh, high level scientists at that project and then um, then the project big project I could from that big project when it's going on I could do a small bit myself uh, and I um, built an artificial chromosome for this parasite with its certain areas of that artificial chromosome and then to create this um, chromosomes that could actually be transmitted across different stages of the parasite so that was really an exciting exciting uh, experience yeah that's exciting yeah. yeah so from what i understand so you built this chromosome that you could then play around with and kind of almost like push different buttons to see what happened with resistance exactly. and then you can also wow. uh, you don't you, i think initially we start to do single chromosomes but you can put bunch of chromosomes and see the mm-hmm. and then try with different drugs uh, and you have a selection of drugs and then see um, whether you will start to see any differences with different combination of genes so that's the idea how much are you missing being in the wet lab at the moment <laughs> that's a really good question uh, i my my decision to move actually from the lab was very um evolved over years um, but that's because I had the trouble to actually uh, progress over my career so it was very difficult mm-hmm. as technician to actually move to the next level but I think I always felt that I could do something different and more communication related so I'm really lucky mm-hmm. actually like almost getting to 50 and I found a different passion for for me uh, improve you know enrich this technical or scientific areas by with our communication and that really excites yeah. me actually I think I mean it sounds like without all or all of your years as a scientist and working in the lab and working as a technical expert are probably what make you absolutely perfect for what you're doing now and without those do, what doing what you're doing now would be a lot more difficult yeah yeah and of course i didn't answer your question do i miss being in the lab Uh, (laughs) i don't dream about it uh i think i was long enough in the lab i wouldn't mind going back either but i miss my group i must say we had a really good group at that time and this collaboration feeling with that lab people was really nice but then i have really nice colleagues now so um yeah, maybe there is time for everything. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I kind of I worked in a lab uh, through my undergrad, and then worked in a lab in my masters. Uh, now I've shifted to completely computational, and I could go back into a lab maybe one day, but <laughs> I don't actively miss it. I don't think at the moment. Um, I'm curious about what made you want to leave Turkey, and what like what drove that. Actually, it was never my idea. Um, 
I think it's also at that time you need to have really some financial support from your family or which I didn't have so uh, mid-class family uh, but I have been lucky I was working I was doing my master and working in a, in a quite a big hospital in Turkey and then because I was educated in English they decided to send me abroad to have mm. some experience collaboration so I, I went to um, uh, Belgium first and then they sent me to Erasmus University in Rotterdam And then um, we get on really well there. And after three weeks, they told me, you can come and work here if you want. <laughs> and that was a big change because I had my position already in Turkey as a biologue. Yeah. And, and I had a permanent position already. Mm -hmm. But I think I wanted to see more of the world. And I always wanted to learn more, uh, see more, taste more. And that's how it started quite a long time ago already and then I never thought about going back but I must say I always miss my country my roots are there yeah that will never change yeah, yeah. definitely yeah that's quite a bold decision it is of course and it's not easy you know like especially nowadays for example I I didn't see my mom for two years and then you of course yeah judge yourself uh, was that the right decision so many years ago but mm. This is my life now, so I, I yeah. don't have a Turkish <laughs> husband either, so, you know, then... Um, but I think it widens your horizon. Uh, yeah, definitely. I really like that, because I also worked in the Netherlands with a big uh, group of people with different nationalities, and we are at the core the same, only we have these different backgrounds, which makes it very, very rich, which I don't think I would change that decision. It's a difficult decision, emotionally if I look at it but I don't think I would change it no yeah yeah it's just it's funny because I've obviously moved across the ocean and a couple times now but it's quite common right it's not it's not like I'm a complete anomaly in doing that whereas I think 20 years ago it was far less common yeah and then I think what is important is For me, going back options are very, very limited. So that is because of the scientific, you know, this professional uh, career I have. That was never an option to go back. Yeah, absolutely. So how have you found things in the last year with everything kind of being turned on its head? So when actually um, campus was closed in March, I was only four months into my new role. And it was a big change for me from being a technician to a scientific manager and leading actually the technician commitment role uh, in the institute. Um, so it was, my agenda was very full. Uh, for few few months, I really struggled because I have also daughter at home with me at that time. And my husband was working in the uh, in the campus at the, uh, at the project. Yeah, so you switched to a new role right before, essentially right before COVID. I started in November, actually, to okay. 2000. So you had a little while to get used yes. to it. Amazing. Oh, okay. So when Sanger closed and then they started sequencing COVID, how did that change with the people that you were trying to help? Were they involved in that? And kind of how did you, how did that change your role for them in what you needed to support them yeah. with? So I didn't personally work on the project myself. My husband did, and he's mm -hmm. also a technical yeah. uh, expert. But of course, a lot of our technical stuff involved in the project. Because so many people involved, then the visibility for technical stuff start to really increase and the awareness about technical yeah. stuff. 
And I think in that respect, technical stuff got a lot of visibility and recognition because of this project and their involvement, their commitment to that. Um, and and I represent 590 people in the institute, so which is oh, a wow. big group. But of course, when we are talking about this project, we are not talking about only wet lab people, who are people actually we call wet lab in the lab working with their hands, but we are to- talking about dry lab stuff, which are computational people. So t- Sanger Technician Commitment actually covers both. Uh, that's why a lot of our staff actually uh, involved in this big project. So how would you define a technician? That is one thing we discussed, I think, a few weeks when we formed this initial steering committee. So there was the question, because all the organizations actually define their stuff themselves. So at Sanger, we started as a technician, but then, as I said, we added technical experts as well. Uh, it varies from organization to organization, but we have a very uh, specific uh, description for that. So it is a person who is trained and or skilled in the techniques, tools and technology of their subject, who provides the practical application of knowledge, including hands-on support, directly contributing to teaching and learning, research and enterprise activities. So very inclusive approach. Uh, that we are mm-hmm. taking in, in Sanger. But it varies from uh, organization to organization. Okay. And um, what would be different about kind of a technical role compared to someone who's a wet lab researcher? Um, I wouldn't make that kind of actually separation because I think at the end okay. we work all together, uh, whether you are a technician, technical expert, or whether you are a staff scientist or a postdoc, because I think at the end we are all kind of scientists um, yeah. and um, I think maybe what you mean is what is the difference if people choose more academic career to become maybe PI yeah. right um, yeah so so technical people have of course have a different skill set um, technical people are much more based on their practice with their hands but Many of our staff, I I would say majority, is involved also um, in the scientific uh, side of the things. So that's how I was, at least. Um, So we have different technical stuff in the institutes. People, of course, might be doing some routine works and doing the same things again and again as part of pipelines, like Sanger is very well known for that. But we have also scientific programs where technical staff, technicians, technical experts involved really in uh, scientific projects directly. So, yeah. um, but okay. in terms of skill set, I think technical staff might, might, for example, involve less in writing articles or leading the specific projects themselves independently, mm-hmm. I think. But I know that happens as well because I had my own small project when I was a technician. So that varies between every group, I think, depending on their structure, their hierarchical structure, I would call. Uh, but I think our technical stuff is very, very uh, uh, skilled. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I'm kind of naive because I'm not a postdoc or PhD student and I don't work in a wet lab. So <laughs> I guess, is it kind of like the PhD students or... Um, postdocs come up with kind of the overarching goal and then it's more like the technicians are the problem solvers of how 
how you get there and coming up with methods of how you get there and answer that question. You can call it like this. I think I wouldn't call PhDs always on that level yet. I think when, because yeah, a no. lot of PhDs, <laughs> a lot of PhDs, I think are supervised by technical stuff. So I did that in the past. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Postdocs are, of course, because they already had their PhD and depending on how experienced the technical stuff is as well, depends, because mm-hmm. I remember working very closely with some postdocs together on the same projects um, and deliver together. But yeah, as I said, depending on the on the team, I know very, very uh, highly skilled technical people and mm-hmm. um, or people who are involved in much more routine works and um prefer to do specific type of work you know rather than and i know some technical staff who really went beyond their uh, interest and wanted to do more and own projects so um, it really depends on the group depends on the institute depending on their cultural um, structure mm-hmm. as well i think whether group leaders would like to give that opportunity to people i think is really important i mean especially when you think about how many new methods people might be implementing so you have an overarching idea for a project as a PhD student or a postdoc and for that project you might have to implement a number of different methods that you might have never really done before and that's when you go oh great I'm at the Sanger and there's definitely an expert on that somewhere. Yes and Sanger is very much known but with its collaborative efforts so that's what I really like and our I remember our meetings, our group meetings were always with everyone present. You know, it was yeah. not never like only uh, postdocs or PhDs only separately yeah. meeting, but our meetings always involved everyone. So everyone have a have a and everyone can report on their projects. So it's a very inclusive culture as far as I experienced. Yeah. So you had work published. From what I know, that's quite almost rare for technicians. Um, do you feel like that was a group kind of ethos? Were there people in the group that encouraged you to have work published or do you feel like that was a drive coming from you? And how would you um, advise that people approach that if maybe they don't have that kind of community in the group that they're in? Um, so this projects, all the projects we work, I think on every sector, actually, this is not only for science, um, is a collaboration. So I think it is, at least for the groups I worked, everybody was recognised with their contribution. Yeah. So whether you are as an author or whether you are acknowledged at the end of the article, that was always the case. Um, authorship and acknowledgement is a important area, actually, technician commitment is looking. And our working group, policy working group, created a policy for that to make sure that everybody is included. Um, and that is now part of the Big Sanger publication policy. So... Uh, I think it's really sad to think that doesn't happen on other organizations. That is really sad. But it is. I think the only way to do that is in, indeed by policies, writing policies, making them visible. But of course, culture change is very important. And that's something uh, I think technician commitment is very um, passionate about, that we need to make sure that people are valued. I think people should be given that opportunity to present their own data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's lovely that Sanger have recognised it isn't the norm and, you know, they put something in place and now you see all these universities signing up to it and it's almost like a culture change. Like all these people are signing up and soon it will just be like the norm that everyone is signed up to yes. this. Uh, at the moment for technician yeah. commitment, 
more than 50% of UK universities and many institutes are actually uh, signatories at the moment. And recently, uh, Royal uh, Society of Bio Royal Royal Society of Biology is now, for example, is part of that, mm -hmm. and also UKRI is part of it. Very big mm -hmm. organizations. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. So when people sign up to it, is it just um, is it biology labs or is it all technicians? So technician commitment happens on the institute or organization level. So okay, Sanger is the signatory for the technician commitment, uh, and mm -hmm. and the, this is goes via science council. So it is mainly scientific organizations, and there are few art. Uh, organizations as well involved in this so say someone who is working in kind of in a chemistry as a chemist technician chemistry technician <laughs> they would Chemist. they would be involved <laughs> yeah i don't know a chemistry technician they would still be involved if their institute yes, signed up yes for the yes. if for this. organizations okay, involved then everybody in the organization is uh can be part of that yeah, would you um, mind? So if this this role's very Sanger specific, I think, um, but it was obviously created to fill a gap. Would you mind sort of describing what the gap is that, uh, and sort of the trouble that technicians and technical experts run into, uh, and how this role was created to replace that or fill that? Yeah. Um, so technician commitment actually initiated in two thousand seventeen by uh, Science Cons Council. Um, because despite their importance, technical stuff is not always visible, recognized, and they don't have always career development opportunities. Um, so, in and then organizations start to become signatories of the initiative, and Sanger became a signatory in two thousand eighteen. Um, and at that time, actually, all this initiative was led by HR, but. Um, then there was there was a clear need for someone who is technical actually could lead on that, and when institute became a signatory, I start involved with this voluntarily, uh, because all of our team actually works volunteer. They are all volunteers, mm -hmm. so I'm the only one who actually has an official role. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of program okay. managing the whole initiative, um, and then the more I involved, the more I could see the importance of it and uh, how we can affect actually a lot of things in the institute. And then I was very lucky at that time, institute made a, made a decision to create the role. And then I applied and I was indeed, uh, yeah, again, very, very happy to, uh, lucky to have that role. Um, and if you look at what technician commitment covers is we want to form this community to start with. I think in the organizations, I think scientific organizations, um, you see PhDs, postdocs have their own small organizations. But I think technical staff yeah. miss that um, uh, official kind of uh, names yeah. and organ organization. And... Um, it includes so many things, actually, technician commitment. As I say, visibility, recognition, career development, uh, and sustainability are the key areas. But it can range from showcasing our staff, uh, telling their stories, to uh, policies that infect. But what we want to do, actually, is that we want to have the voice of technical staff in the institute. We want, yeah. them, we want them to be involved in decision-making, um, they want we want them to tell what they want from us how we can help them 
It's pretty wild to think about the fact that that is so new. Like, it's so obvious, right? Uh, like, technicians are such a pillar of so much of the research that goes on, yet they don't have their own sort of group and representative. And I'm hoping that over time, there will be similar position on different organizations as well, because everybody is doing this voluntarily next, next to their job. And it's very difficult to, if, if you have such a wide program, to actually do that efficiently, I think, as a volunteer. That's why Sanger actually leads the way. What do you think that non-technician staff, so PhDs, postdocs, um, could do to become allies to technicians? Um, this is a really good point because, as I said, we don't want to form only this community between our technical staff, but we want to be in alignment with whole institute, and that includes everyone. And I think without their support, whether they are PhDs, postdocs, senior leaders, managers, I think that um, initiative would not succeed. Uh, you yeah. can produce policies, and if you don't implement them or make sure that people know about them, then mm-hmm. it doesn't create any visibility or any awareness. And then, for example, um, there is a big project going on at the moment, which we will launch next week on career framework to make sure that technic- or technical people have a career opportunities have framework mm-hmm. that they can actually grow into it clear uh, clear job titles clear job descriptions and link to learning and development as well yeah it's because i yeah when i think about working or i worked as a it's called a research assistant a research associate and various other titles like that as a technical role uh, and you do feel like there's a ceiling without another degree um And for me, I think that's part of the reason I'm doing a PhD. And maybe if I'd been working uh, as a technical expert and had a better sort of clear view of career progression, maybe I would have chosen a different path. I don't know that that's really clear. Yes, yes, that's. I think in general, I think in science, uh, career career uh, opportunities are quite flat. I think so. Whether even if you have a PhD, I think you will struggle at certain time for sure. But uh, you are absolutely right. I think um, there is a ceiling there. If you don't have a PhD, it's not very easy sometimes to go over that ceilings. And that's something we are trying to uh, refrain in, in, in uh, Sanger by creating a very technical pathway for people so people can grow mm-hmm. through different grades and with clear descriptions of responsibilities knowledge in sanger we have for example research assistant part which is the technical part more we have staff scientists which are more into the direction of going into maybe pi or not but a bit more academic and then we have scientific managers so what we try to do we try to we aim to make clear distinctions between different areas so not only to grow vertically but also if you want to change from one to another horizontal change, what you need to be mm-hmm. doing to be able to make that those shifts. Uh, something else I wanted to know is uh, you've had so much experience. I'm wondering, and sort of pushed your own career forward. Has Who's been influential in that? Or who can you think of anyone that's potentially given you advice or has anyone... <laughs> I worked with a very uh, skilled manager 
in my previous lab quite a long time. And I think I learned a lot from her about management, about soft skills that one should have. Um, and I, I would say she she is a role model. Uh, we had our frictions a lot at the beginning, <laughs> I think. <laughs> we were very strong both. Um, because I was very experienced technical staff and she was a young manager. But then I really respected her, I think, over time, how good she was as a manager, how skilled. And then I think she also saw how skilled I was in the techniques in the lab. So we formed a really good, I think, collaboration, a group together. So I I would say she was really the role model for me. I learned a lot from Mm -hmm. her. Yeah. And now you're a manager. So what skills do you think or what things make somebody a good manager? Oh, that is um, (laughs) whole training uh, training uh, plan because I did such a course recently actually about leadership um, I would say mm. communication first of all you need to make sure that you communicate very clearly what you want to do mm-hmm. why you want to do this flexibility uh, it's not all about yourself you might be the manager but everybody has their own struggles or, or issues or different personalities we work with very different people um, and then how to be I think uh, this how to form this friendly environment for people where people can really come and talk to you and express their concerns um, I think being leadership is really it, it's a it's a difficult area, which I would love to grow in maybe 10 years. Um, How valuable have you found the training at Sanger? Uh, very valuable, I think. So you can go to trainings, right? You can listen many, many trainings and don't apply them to yourself. So I think that's the danger mm-hmm. with trainings. I, I did a very impressive core training recently about um, leadership. And I think uh, everybody should follow such a course. Was that through the Sanger? Yes, that was Talented Women's Impact Program. Rather fancy name. Yeah, I'm starting that. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's really... Yeah, uh, yeah probably you will remember what I said to you now after when you do, because it's a very interactive training where you can really apply because you need to show that you are learning and at the same time you need to come up with um, examples on what you do yeah. and it really it really inspired me in this last year because I think it was a tough time and then it was really good to have that um, sharing with similar minded people and then applying it did you find it beneficial that that training was just limited to women did you find that it was targeted a bit more specifically to you and why do you think Sanger made it that way um, again from personal experience I think I never felt that uh, woman was discriminated against men on the areas that I work with but that is a fact so there is a lot of science I thought course was amazing really opened my eye for this kind of important issues but I think it is such an important course I think it would be great to extend it to men as well yeah yeah, I guess the men have already had a, a little bit of a head start. That is true. I think they, and you know, it's very funny because I think majority of that courses also management woman wants to do it because men think they already know everything. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, this is too much generalization. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. My husband would be very angry think... with that when I say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't want this to turn into an advert for Sanger, but I think something that I've really valued as well in my team, because I guess informatics is very male dominated, but I've found more recently, especially the men in my team are turning to me for advice on how they can be better at diversity and hiring i love that like that's that, great which is so nice to see that's yeah great. it's really nice that's to great see. indeed your, your areas are very male dominant areas which is always yeah. discussed during meetings yeah. <laughs> so looking back on your experience you've obviously done incredible things with you know de- developing new methods and now you've got this new career path so what has been your proudest achievement over that time when i look back uh i think decision of coming abroad from Turkey at that Mm -hmm. time which we are talking about more than 20 years ago uh, that was a brave decision I think because at the moment I think world is very much mixed everybody travels everywhere goes everywhere it was not like that 20 plus years ago so that would be one thing I think it was a very brave move I'm very proud of Uh, and I think in terms of scientific, I would talk about this artificial chromosome project that I led on, which I think was amazing experience. And then for my career, I think making that big shift, that courage again, I think um, I'm quite proud of. And that's something I would like to tell people. It's never too late, actually, to make big changes for your career because we will work probably till our 65, 67, right? There is quite a lot of years to work I think. And um, yeah, my advice would be definitely own your own career, you know, own it, uh, think about it and look at the opportunities mm-hmm. where you would really kind of feel at home. And maybe if, if, if you are lucky, shine on that in the future. Uh, but it's never too late, I think. So that big changes needs a lot of courage. Uh, and maybe lots of preparation, years of preparation, which I did. Um, but use the opportunities if they are around, uh, involve in voluntary uh, initiatives, look around, think about it. I think that would be important. Yeah. Yeah, when you say there's so much time to work, I never really think about it in numbers. You think about like, oh, am I wasting a year? But it actually makes you feel more comfortable to make decisions because you can you can go back on them if it was the wrong choice. Exactly. I mean, I think you yeah. can even do educations, right? You can learn new things. If you never tried, you never know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so another question is, what's your next big goal you have or next goal in your career or in life or in both? Uh, I definitely don't want to move another country. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) An anti-goal. Anti-goal. I like it here. I think I like to live here in England. Uh, That is really a big question. Um, I don't have definitive plans, but one thing I would like to do is definitely I would like to develop myself uh, in my career. Project management is one area I would really like to look in and I really enjoy. Um, but I think the goal is I would love to be a good leader at certain time uh, because I kind of feel like I was thrown into this without knowing much about it and I had to be a leader <laughs> and I have to be a leader, which can be challenging uh, because I think it, this is something you learn over years. You don't, l- I think very few people would 
born as a leader. Um, there's so much to learn. So that would be my biggest role, I think, to become a leader and to rather than becoming a leader, maybe to also help people, you know, uh, to make, mm. uh, I want to hear people say in 10 years, yeah, there was a girl woman there at certain time and really made a change in my career. So if we can, I think, reach there and make that kind of stamp in people's life, that would be my goal, I think. That's a great goal. Yeah. I can see that happening. <laughs> yeah. From the sounds of it, you're changing people's careers across the country. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That is, that is a big, big one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Yeah, I feel thanks. very privileged to have had this one-on-one time and get to ask all of my own questions about the technician community. (laughs) Exclusive. We got the exclusive look. (laughs) Thank you very much. I feel honoured. Thank you. I feel so thankful. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Decoding Life podcast. We'll be releasing our next episode in a couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this one, why not follow us on Instagram at Decoding Life Podcast or Twitter at Decoding Life Pod to see what our next episode will be about. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of the next time we released an episode. We would like to thank the public engagement team at the Welcome Sanger Institute for their help and funding of this project. In particular, Alexandra Canet-Font and Dr. Elena Pants for their guidance and advice through the entire process. We would also like to thank Piv Gopalasingam for thoroughly researching our guests prior to interviews, as well as Rick Keynes for our beautiful logo. Thank you.